0: And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman I'm going to focus this week's podcast on the two funds for life and and I want to say b- before I spend the entire thing on this particular project that since this is brand new and uh, since we have done so many things to support the educational end of this including. A video and a podcast, which, by the way, was simply the video without the uh, uh, without the graphics, um, and uh, and an article at Market Watch, and of course the very fine article that uh, uh, that Chris uh, Pedersen wrote. Uh, by the way, I might just mention that we've had a uh, a lot of opens. I know that 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 Chris is around forty five hundred opens for his article and we've had uh, over 7600 people uh, open the uh, uh, the uh, video and and uh, at marketwatch uh, some 30,000 plus people have opened that article doesn't mean they read it but, <laughs> but at least they opened it and uh, and and then we had the good fortune uh, during the same week for Chris and Daryl and myself to be uh, in Las Vegas to introduce the the strategy is part of uh, my presentation to the American Association of Individual Investors, and and that that was a thrill too. We had a lot of friends uh, of uh, of our work there, and had a chance to shake hands with people who listen to or watch us and read us uh, from all over the world, in, including uh, Spain and and the UK and and all over the U.S. So that was a, that was a true joy. We had about. Um, I think 270 people who came to my workshop on Saturday afternoon. So it was tremendous. But here's what I know. I know from reading the things that are being said at Boglehead uh, uh, about the strategy that uh, many of those folks may not have read Chris's article, may not have watched the video. I also know from the questions that we're getting through our website that there uh, is some confusion. And I realize, in hindsight, that probably um, we, we expected too much of folks who were watching the video, or let's say this, we did more than we should have. We made it more complicated than it needed to be. So what I'm going to do with this podcast is go through what I think are kind of the 10 lessons or the 10 things that people should take away from this strategy. And it isn't even just a matter of somebody following our recommendations, but rather thinking through the use of a target date fund, whether it should be a standalone investment or whether there is, in fact, some advantage to to adding at least one uh, additional uh, asset class, so I will go through those at the end of that discussion. I will answer some questions that have come up uh, and respond to just some comments that not even questions but comments that that in my mind probably should have could have led to a question and try to make this clearer to people. Our goal as as you know, because this is not a strategy for seventy year olds it's really a strategy for 20, 30, and 40-year-olds, and, uh, uh, and, and, and I, I want to make sure that people understand what it is we believe and what it is we've found, and, and hopefully even to address how much we trust uh, what we've found, because that's always uh, always a problem. Uh, I, I do, before I get started here, I do want to mention uh, that uh, if you get a chance in the future, next year the AAII conference is going to be in Orlando, Florida, and and I hope I don't know that we'll be invited back to make a presentation, but uh, they have invited us two years in a row, and uh, hopefully they'll invite us back for some some additional uh, information that will be helpful to investors. And uh, and hope to see those AAII members who attend see you back there, and maybe even convince some of you in between now and then to go try out an AAII meeting. I'm not going to talk about AAII at depth here, but I will another time because there are things that are going on there in helping investors that uh, I think are really really good. So let me talk about what what I've. Titled is Two Funds for Life, The Bottom Line. And these are the, the ten lessons that uh, I hope will give you more clarity of what it is that we believe. And the first one is this. And there was one gentleman, one of the Bogleheads, who said that something like, Paul seems to be playing, name that tune, remember that 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 naming the tune in so many notes. And this person said, uh, Paul's figured out how to do it in two notes, but he knows how to do it in one note, and that is to invest in just the target date fund. And I'm not opposed. This is the, the, the first lesson. I am not opposed to people using the target date fund, just that and nothing more. I think that actually is a great solution for most of the young people that I speak with. Uh, I spoke with uh, a couple of high school classes yesterday uh, on Bainbridge Island. And um, I think that for those folks who simply want to really, truly set it and forget it, uh, the Target Date Fund, is, it's, it's the best solution. If it keeps people from second-guessing the market, if it keeps people from chasing fads, if it if it keeps people from kind of wondering what to do next because they're just not sure if there's some piece of information if they just had it that they'd know what to do, well, the target date fund is set up as I've said before to be managed just like in theory a pension fund would be managed for a person who is going to retire in 40 years. Somebody has to put the money aside. Somebody has to manage that money based on how many young people are in the pension in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, etc. But the obligation is at the end of the line that the corporation or the government have made a commitment to pay some sort of a monthly amount. And, uh, And so, I am not opposed to just the target date fund. Uh, that's far better, I think, than people who are trying to kind of select through a list of securities, and so often what they do is they look at the performance to see where they should be, and they look at most recent performance to see where they should be putting their money and 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 all of the all of the evidence that we have is that uh, that has not been a successful way for people. Uh, to invest. So that's, that's number one. The target date fund without any small cap value or the other asset classes is just fine. The second important lesson is that the results that investors are going to receive is going to be largely dependent upon what we'll just call luck, things you cannot control. I've talked in the past about the difference in return Uh, from 1975 to 1999. The the S&P 500 compounded at over 17% over that 25-year period. Truly a golden age for investors, particularly buy-and-holders. But from 2000 through 2018, that same amazing asset class that people thought Was kind of a guarantee of success or a high expectation that you'd get at least a ten percent compound rate of return. Well, in fact, since two thousand, it's been closer to five, about five and a half, uh, rather than ten. So it has been a huge disappointment to people who who determined after twenty five years of huge performance that they would have should have at least a reasonable return well they did not get a reasonable return they did get some return but not but it wouldn't be considered reasonable so luck is a big factor and when i talk to high school kids about trying to you know second guess what what are what are the next 40 or 50 years going to look like in your life well all i have to do to laugh at myself in, in thinking that i could somehow figure that out I can simply go back fifty years myself, and and look at what my life has gone through. You could do the same, and you would see that that luck and just that some, something totally out of your control is going to have a huge impact. But but and this this is these are these are big big buts we're talking about here. There are things that you can control, and this is even true with target date funds you can control first of all your saving rate that's a big deal and we all know the earlier that we do this uh, the the better off we're likely to be and we know that if we start early we may the first 5 years may be the greatest 5 years the stock market ever had and at the end of that 5 years you could say boy am i glad i got in early on the other hand, it may be five of the worst years the stock market ever has. And at the end of that five years, you'd be able to say, boy, am I lucky to have bought all of those great asset classes, those companies at bargain basement prices. Boy, I'm, I'm now set to make a lot of money in the future. So so it it it, it can cut either way. But here's the thing. You'll be able to choose between actively and passively managed target date funds. You're going to be able to choose between high, medium, and low expense funds. You're going to be able to 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 choose between uh, those that uh, who have passively managed portfolios with low fees. I mean, there's a and at or or medium fees rarely will you pay high fees but there's a lot under your control now we know the evidence is definitely in, in your favor if you can find a target date fund that uh, uh that uses passively managed index funds Vanguard has a a tremendous series of of target date funds the problem for you Maybe that the company you work for they've they've chosen some actively managed group of funds uh, and with higher expenses, and that's unfortunate. And about the only thing you can do is uh, uh, one is possibly after you have taken advantage of your four hundred one k up to whatever match that you might have, that beyond that you might go to an IRA, maybe a, hopefully a Roth IRA and go to Vanguard to take advantage of the lower fees and the passively managed uh, portfolios. And I don't want to make too big a deal out of this, but I do hope you do understand how important this is, because I can see, and you can too at Morningstar, what the average returns are for the Vanguard. Let's say I looked at the Vanguard 2050 target date fund, which... Simply means that the person who is investing believes they're going to retire in 2050. And over the last 10 years, that fund has compounded at 11.4%. And they also show the category average there. And the category average is 10.7. So that's 7 tenths of 1% difference between what the average target date fund has gotten, or similar kind of fund, versus Vanguard. Now to make matters potentially worse, is that average of 10.7 includes the 11.4 on the upside, but it also includes a lot of lower returns on the downside in order to come up with that average. And we can look at things like the turnover rate. Uh, The turnover rate uh, is about how actively managed the portfolio is. For example, at Vanguard, uh, 6% turnover. That's very little turnover. The average target date fund is 38% turnover. And that can be one of the reasons that the fund made less money. And there's another way, another reason why a fund might make less money. Sometimes it isn't about the fund itself, but it's about the investors who had bad timing. And in fact, uh, again at Morningstar, you can see that, that the investors at, not, not the fund, but the investors and at Vanguard outproduced investors on in other funds by about eight tenths of one percent a year. Now you're also going to have you're going to have and this this let me just talk about point number three about target date funds. they're going to be driven by the glide path, and they're going to be driven by what equities they use in the portfolio. And how much in bonds? So you've got these major asset classes, big, small, value, growth, U.S. international, equities and bonds. And it is interesting how alike these target date funds tend to be. Because when I look at what Vanguard has in their target date fund in the equity part of the portfolio, It's virtually the same as the average in the industry. Most everybody seems to think that 10% in bonds is about right for a 20-year-old, and a 30-year-old, and a 35-year-old. It's only when people get to be around 40, they start to ramp up the exposure to fixed income. And if you listened to or watched our video, you know that we're upset. I mean, really. Upset that you're stuck with 10% in bonds as a 20-year-old. Because if the market goes down, you really want to have a chance to buy as much in, in equities as you can. And that bond portion is keeping you from getting all you should have from that bear market. And I think we have to remember what the academics have told us about where we get most of our return as an investor. Once you're able to control your emotions, once you put everything on automatic, because the minute your emotions become part of the decision-making process, uh, the academics have no idea what you're likely to get, but they believe from all the studies that you're going to make a lot less. But what they say is the most important uh, aspect of making money is what asset classes your fund owns. So, for example, if your mutual funds owned a bunch of commodities, uh, the history of commodities would say that uh, you're destined for some very low returns. Uh, If you had all your money in penny stocks, uh, the history of investing would be that you would probably have very low returns. Somebody else makes the money on penny stocks, not the investor. But when we look at big and small companies, growth and value companies, it turns out that when value is doing well, almost all value funds will do well compared to growth. Now, that doesn't mean they all get exactly the same return. They certainly don't, because some are actively managed and some are passively managed as an index. But the bottom line is that when value goes through a long period of success, all you need to do is to be in an index fund that represents value. The same is true of growth. The same is true of small and value and uh, and large. So how your target date fund is built in terms of, of its exposure to large and exposure to small, that is, that's really a big deal. And here's what we know. We know that historically, over, over 90 years, that small makes more than large, and that value makes more than growth. But the fact is, is that target date funds are mostly comprised of stocks that are larger and more growthy, more growth-oriented. And, um, and, and, and both U.S. and international uh, have had very f- fine, very long-term track records. U.S. better than international recently, but prior to that, it was better internationally than in the U.S., and we're talking about, for a lot of investors, 40 years where nobody, nobody knows who's going to come out ahead. But I do know this, that most target date funds have exposure to both U.S. and international. But again, U.S. and international large and U.S. and international growth, yes, some value. But almost all is in... Uh, uh, in large cap. The fifth lesson, I think, is very, very important. Because one of the things you're forced to do if you're thinking about this two funds for life for yourself or for a child or a grandchild, in terms of recommending it, We can't force them to do it, but if we have enough evidence that it makes sense, maybe they will. But here's what we need to understand it would make sense for you to believe that if adding small cap and adding value, if that would have a positive impact on the long-term returns of the target date fund, by golly, Vanguard would do it. Fidelity would do it. T. Rowe Price would do it. They'd all do it. But we have to understand that there's an aspect of investing that is more than just uh, what's in the best interest in terms of the raw return. You see, these people all know about small cap, and they all know about value. But they also know this. One is that the more complex that portfolio is, the more work they have to do. Now, I'm not suggesting they're just plain lazy, but i do think it is their desire to keep this process as simple as possible the second thing and this is a reality that small cap and small cap value represent asset classes that are that they're difficult to trade actively certainly because they're not as liquid and so you'd like to have a very seasoned investor owning those uh, small cap and small cap value parts of the portfolio. You don't want them panicking and, and, and kind of almost in, in likelihood bailing out at exactly the wrong time. And, and when it is exactly the wrong time, we would expect the small cap and the value to be down further than the large cap and the growth so, this fact that there's less liquidity, well, you know, that's kind of a, that's a consideration for the people who are managing these big funds. And to have the, the underlying holdings be more liquid is a plus for them. May not be for you, but it is for them. And then the third thing is that I, I, can, I can guarantee you that if you have a portfolio that has small cap and and, and small-cap value, uh, along with the target date fund that's mostly large-cap and, and, and growth, there are going to be times that the small-cap and the value are going to make you look like a hero. You're going to do much better because you've got the small-cap and value, but then you're also going to have periods where you're going to look worse. And that style drift becomes hard for the people who manage these portfolios to explain. I don't mean they don't understand it. They do understand it. But they get these angry questions from shareholders. How how come my friend, he's up 25% and I'm only up 10? What's wrong? Are you people just not very smart? And the the public investor can be very, very... um, uh, unfriendly at a moment when they're underperforming what looks like taking candy from a baby. For example, in 1997 and 98, uh, an all-U.S. large-cap S&P 500 portfolio was up 20 to 30%. But a diversified portfolio that included US and international large and small might have only been up 5-6% for the year. That's hard to explain to make sense to people. You say, "Well, this is just the way. This is what you have to go through." And the investor says, "No, I'd rather go through that over there that made 20 to 30%." Now what we know happened by the way, this is hindsight, it's always so so clear afterward. In 2000 through 2003, in fact, in 2000 through 2009, the S&P 500 was a dog. It lost about 1% a year, compounded. Whereas the big, small value growth U.S. international portfolio compounded at 7 to 9%. So it's not as easy as we'd all like it to be. But that style drift for managers of money, in large part for people who are trusting that they're going to do the right thing, as long as they stay, and and very similar to what the S&P 500 is doing. If the S&P 500 goes down significantly, and the target date fund is down, then they can say, hey, everybody went through this. Everybody's down. I I know you're upset, but you just got to stick with it. On the other hand, if the underperformance is not something everybody else is experiencing, it becomes hard for the managers to explain that. So there are reasons why the uh, target date funds uh, try to look very much like the market that they know their investors are going to understand. Uh, On the other hand, if you go back and you look at the performance It happens the other way, too, except it happens to so few people that it doesn't make the headlines. For example, 1977, the S&P 500 was down 7.2%, while small cap value, the index, was up over 22. So you're going to have periods like that. But when it only happens to a small handful of people, it hasn't become an important story. It probably would if it happened to more people. But uh, this this whole problem of, of style drift and the difference in the returns uh, is an interesting challenge uh, for the managers. And number six, um, I think it is really interesting that by just putting 10% in small cap value and never rebalancing may in fact add uh, as much as as a third to the long-term earnings that you will receive from your target date fund portfolio. So if all you do is encourage your your young investor in their twenties or their thirties to put ninety percent in the target date fund and ten percent in the small cap value they do have a chance to to live a different retirement I mean, literally regardless how much money they put in that's not going to change whether you put in a thousand a year or ten thousand a year. obviously, the person with ten thousand a year has has more money at the end of the 40 years, but we're always looking at the relative amount. So the person who could only put in 1,000 a year is still going to have that additional 30% if the future looks like the past. And that additional 30% means more income in retirement and hopefully leaving a lot more money eventually to family and friends and whatnot so it's it's uh it's a big deal now you know that that's the good news about adding that small cap value uh The challenge is that that uh that small cap value um can grow to be a really big part of the portfolio and uh, to be a big part of the portfolio uh at the time that you should be getting more conservative than being more aggressive. So uh, that is what at some level is really kind of backwards about just uh, putting that 10% in and and letting it ride. And the seventh point that I want to make is that uh, while it seems very out of balance, To use the 1.5 times your age, and to put that amount, so for a 20-year-old that would be 1.5 of 20 is 30, put that 30% in the target date fund, and the other 70% in the small cap value. Now that I'm sure sounds radical to a lot of people, but it does make sense to the extent that you want to take more risk. It isn't when you're 65 that you want to have more risk, which is what could happen under lesson number six, where you just put that that money in there, that 10%, and just let it be. No, if you are willing to look at the history of investing and the advantages of taking the greater risk when you're young— you start with the 70% and then you have a strategy that by the time you're 65, 66 years old, you're out of the small cap value. And that is really a, a more sensible approach. Uh, and you, you could say, but gosh, couldn't small cap value struggle? And, 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 and in those early years when I'm putting all that money in small cap value, isn't it possible that we could be hit with a bear market. And I mentioned this, I think, in the last recording, but we've looked at that. We've looked at the period from 1929 to 1938. It was a bloodbath for small-cap value. There were some huge declines during that decade. But at the end of that decade... If you had been a young person and had any money to invest, I mean, that's the way you would have had to have the money to put in the market. But the bottom line is, is that you would have been buying small cap value at greatly discounted prices. And by the end of that 10-year period, you actually, by dollar cost averaging in, putting the same amount in every month, whether $100 a month or $500 a month, that That's not what matters. What matters is the compound rate of return was over 10% a year during the worst 10 years in stock market history. So it, 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 it's it's okay to take the risk when you're young. Now, having said that, we also know that some 23% of millennials have all their money in fixed income. So this obviously isn't for everybody. First of all, we've got to be comfortable with the equities in the target date fund, and then we need to be comfortable with the use of that that small cap, adding that small cap value. And number eight, let's focus on the potential additional returns. Uh, In fact, there's a table that we've... uh, included a link along with the description of the podcast uh, that allows us to very simply look at uh, the results of the different combinations. And I'll I'll talk about this uh, uh, in a few minutes. But let me just focus on the difference between the Vanguard-like target date fund, and we're going to focus on the average. I mean, there were There were cases where people made a lot more than this, and there were cases they made less. But this was the average, and I'm talking about the average amount of money that was left at the end of the 40 years. And if you don't recall, let me just remind you that in the study, we assumed $10,000 a year invested, and increasing that amount by inflation. And If you can't invest $10,000 a year and you want to figure out what it would be worth, you could simply, let's say you could invest $5,000, you would divide all the numbers by two. It's very, very easy. So, but let's use the $10,000 number. You'd have $7.9 million, a little more than that, at the end of the 40 years on average if you use the strategy of adding the small-cap value by using the formula of multiplying your age by 1.5 times, that goes into the target date fund, the balance in the small-cap value, reducing that amount of small-cap value along the way, every year, less and less, you would have ended with $11.5 million on Average. Now, this is not a minor difference. That is a big, big difference. Be, be, because when, when, when you talk about the possibility of having an, another three plus million dollars to live on at, at 4% a year, that's a big deal. And it's not only a big deal in terms of having more money to live on, but it's more money to leave to others. And it's more peace of mind. Now we're doing our best to give you peace of mind about adding that small cap value because the formula says you reduce that amount until it's basically when you're 65 years old, 66, it's gone. And you look just like the target date funded Vanguard. Number nine, you can take more risk if you'd like to. And we actually have a number of people who have followed our work for some time who are taking uh, more risk. Now, on this page, on this page here uh, that's titled Two Funds for Life Portfolio Tables for 2018, on the second a set of tables. There is um, one that says 2.5 times your age minus 25. Now that's more aggressive. And uh, you'll notice that instead of ending up with 11.5 million, the average is 15.8 million. But understand how much more aggressive that is. That is, uh, for a 25-year-old, you would be taking your age of 25 and you'd be subtracting 25. That means that you don't have any money in the target date fund and that all of your money is in the small-cap value fund. Not totally illogical idea, maybe for a part of a portfolio. You might... You might have a child who is, uh, or somebody you know who's in their uh, their twenties and they're doing their four hundred one k plan. Maybe uh, maybe using a target date fund there, but maybe in their IRA, uh, they could use this strategy, and that uh, that would allow them, with a lesser amount of money, possibly, to use this more aggressive strategy uh i i it's totally legitimate and uh uh and and by the way not so different from that is the Merriman aggressive target date fund glide path that is right next to that 2.5 strategy uh and that one is actually done most easily probably at m1 uh you can read about that on our website but it, too, starts out with having all of the uh, the money in, uh, in in small cap and, and small cap value. I think that uh, Chris Pedersen has done a just a terrific job of building his portfolios with the idea that we try to address different levels of risk that a young person might have, but but to be aiming towards getting more conservative, considerably more conservative, as you get older and, 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 and get close to retirement. So number 10, what I'd like to do is have you take a look uh, at this, and I'll walk you through, I'll talk about it for those that are out walking. Um, th- this, this table is built to show a full range of levels of risk, starting with the the vanguard like target date fund, and there are two things that i'm interested in: one is I want to see how big the pot of gold is at the end of the of the rainbow uh, after the forty years, and uh, secondly, I, I want to know what kind of a drawdown you're likely to experience when you first retire. Now, this is not actually a high probability, but it simply says if you end your your work life, let's say, at 65 and you start living off of that money, you're going to be sensitive as to how far it might go down. And the Vanguard-like portfolio could about 1 out of 10 years go down 26%. That's what our studies show. So who knows whether it will happen in the first year you retire or the 10th year after you retire, but that's a risk that's sitting there in that portfolio. We also know that looking to the past, that that strategy... Uh, would experience some point along the way. Remember, we're talking about 40 years of data. A decline of 46 percent. Now, when we then look at another strategy, other than the standard Vanguard-like target date fund, we want to look at these same numbers. So the first thing that we notice is that by putting 10% in small cap value and 90% in the target date fund, and I mentioned this earlier, you end up with over 10.3 million on average instead of seven point nine three. So big advantage to putting that 10% into small cap value. The drawdown risk at age 65 is 37% versus 26% for the Vanguard like portfolio. Uh, b- by the way, what a person could do at age 65, let's say at the end of, of, of 40 years, they could have exactly the same drawdown risk as the Vanguard-like target date fund by simply putting what they have in a Vanguard-like target date fund. You don't have to keep taking the risk of that 10% in small-cap value. But if you do, but if you do, you are putting yourself at greater risk. But then there's the drawdown the loss that you're going to sustain somewhere along the way. And it's only a couple more percent historically. So um, that, to me, makes this combination, particularly for the first 30 years, let's say, of this pro- process, um, be, I think, pretty good one for a young investor who's just getting started. And then to show you, for those who even have greater risk tolerance, to see what it looks like if you put 20% in small cap value or 30% in small cap value. Well, big surprise, instead of 10.3 million, it's 12.7 million if you put in 20% small cap value. And if you put 30% small cap value and 70% in the target date fund, you end up with about $15 million at the end of that period of time. Now, obviously, it's easy for us to throw out these numbers, but you know, if you go back to the original handout material that we, uh, that we had when we first did the video. Remember that we had a range of what you would have left at the uh, end of that period of time. Uh, And it could be much higher than fifteen million, but it could be much lower than fifteen million as well. We're always dealing with the unknown. And then in the in the lower set of, of boxes on this two funds for life portfolio table page, we also show the impact of using one fund that's less aggressive. Large cap value. That is theoretically less risky than small cap value. But it still produced almost $2 million more, about $1.87 million more than just the vanguard, like so. Uh, I would think if you wanted to be more conservative, you could use large cap value. In fact, you could split between large cap value and small cap value. So now you got three funds for life. But that would that would reduce the risk uh, 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 somewhat. Okay give you a little more diversification, a little more large cap. But the compound rate of return is about another million dollars uh, over over the the large cap value by itself. So you have all of these different choices. And um, uh, we do not, we've made this very clear, we do not play the role of advisor. If I had the time and if I had the energy and uh, and if I were still uh, a registered investment advisor, it would be great fun to sit down one by one with young investors and work through this, given all of the known variables about their life, how much they make, how secure their job is. Uh, How much do they have in assets other places in their life? Um, What are their capabilities of getting help from parents to fund their IRA or 401k early? Uh, Even what the choices within their 401k uh, might be. And One of the things that Chris and Daryl and I are going to do is to sort through a lot of of, of 401k plans and try to give people some guidance as to which funds they should probably use if they want to apply this uh, 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 these kinds of strategies. So let me make sure that you know what's going on on our site and how we're trying to to help you get educated about this. Uh, Chris Petterson is going to be uh, answering uh, questions, and most of his answers will be in the newsletter that goes out every two weeks, and uh, And then once they go out with the newsletter, they'll make their way over to the Two Funds for Life page uh, on our website. And then you can get there either by going to paulmerriman.com, and you'll see a link that, or you could go to twofundsforlife.com and that will take you there as well. So, Chris will be working hard answering questions. He has the same restrictions that I do, and that's basically simply being limited as to how much real advice that we can give. The uh, I'll be answering some on these podcasts, um, and we'll probably be noting those in some way uh, there on uh, on the site. Um, we also, I, I I hope that you'll take advantage of opportunities to come and 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 see us when we're out and about. I'm going to be speaking here just in a few weeks uh, in Camarillo, California, for the. Uh, Santa Barbara and Ventura chapter of the AAII. I'll be speaking for a couple of hours. Part of that will be on this strategy. And uh, for those who really like to plan ahead, in June of 2019, I'll be in L.A. for the uh, a morning presentation. Uh, and um, and I'll be in May. I'll be uh, uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, Uh, in Milwaukee, doing AAII chapters. And if you happen to belong to the uh, Seattle Study Group, uh, I'll be uh, talking with uh, probably a couple hundred dentists uh, in January, someplace off the coast of uh, of Florida. So uh, we do like getting out and having the chance to uh, to teach eyeball-to-eyeball, eyeball, but we will continue our work here. Let me simply give you a couple of quick questions, a short answer uh, situations here. Uh, here, he, uh, uh, Tim O'Connell says, uh, 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 this I think is under our, some people have actually gone in and written comments under the video. Uh, He says, indeed, a great video, exclamation mark. I love that. And to shorten his question, basically what he wants to know is, is it okay to rebalance annually instead of monthly? In fact, I think that's the way that most people will do it. Uh, It actually uh, will increase the return a little bit uh, if you rebalance monthly, or I shouldn't say it will, it should if you rebalance annually instead of monthly, because what happens when you rebalance monthly is you're constantly taking money from the better performing fund and putting some of that into the the lesser performing fund. So if you wait a year to do that, then you will have let that uh, better performing fund run a bit longer. You'll also take on a little more risk, but Certainly rebalancing once a year is just fine. Another question, uh, great video, Paul. Can you share your thoughts on mid-cap value? I believe it's beaten small-cap value over the past 30 years, is what Adam says. And it's first of all, there are a lot of different ways, different indexes for uh, small cap and mid cap and large cap value. Some, I don't know, maybe a year ago, we did a piece on all the different indexes for small cap and small cap value. So you could have considerably different returns based on how a particular index has done. But it's true, you are going to see some long periods. Uh, of what we'll call underperformance, not necessarily terrible performance. But yes, it, it it could be that mid-cap value could do better than small-cap value. It could be that large-cap value could do better than small-cap value. Now, I don't have the numbers for mid-cap, but I do have the numbers for, mid-cap, uh, for small-cap versus large-cap. I know that looking out over 40 years... That small cap value has been the number one asset class of about, uh, looks like there are about 15 asset classes. And the large cap value asset class has never been uh, number one. So I do think that small cap value will likely do better than mid cap value but that the odds are not very great as we look at many 40-year periods. If we look at a 10-year period, small-cap value is the number one asset class 46% of the time, and large-cap value is the number one asset class 5% of the time. So it doesn't mean that these different asset classes aren't going to have years of of, uh, superior performance. In fact, here I just noticed over all 30-year periods, because uh, Adam, I think, uh, mentioned a 30-year period. um, If you look at all 30-year periods, the small cap value has been number one in 82.5% of the 30 years, large cap value was the best in 1.6% of those. So, So we can't expect small cap value to be number one always. And by the way, maybe it will never be number one again. Maybe it'll be number two a lot, but not number one. That's the nature of investing, dealing with the unknown. But again, I have to emphasize To the extent that we can control the future, make sure we're taking those steps. Make sure we're focused on low expenses. Make sure we're focused on on diversification and the right asset classes. Make sure we're not letting our emotions take advantage of us. And for many of you, if uh, the idea is just to put Money into one fund and never have to rebalance, never have to think about it again. if that gets you to the place where you achieve your long-term goals, I just I think that's wonderful. So uh, keep listening. we'll keep answering your questions and uh, and look forward to helping you improve your financial future. Thanks for listening and thanks for passing this information.